Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Today on the program, I'll preview the Oscars ahead of next week's Academy Awards ceremony. It looks like Oppenheimer will be getting lots of gold. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review American Blues Theater's local premiere of the Reclamation of Madison Hemmings. And later in the show, we'll hear all about a unique local tradition in Park Ridge where parents have put on a fundraising variety show for the past 70 years. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. The 96th Academy Awards ceremony is set to take place next Sunday, March 10th. That means we've made it to the end of this year's awards season. Joining me to preview Hollywood's Biggest Night is Janet Arvia, Arts and Culture Editor for Rebellious Magazine for Women. Thanks for joining me again this year. Oh, thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Janet's been with me the past couple years to to preview the Oscars. We'll talk about some predictions and some of the bigger categories and how we think the the ceremony might play out. Every award season is a, a little different. Sometimes there are clear favorites that emerge right away. In other years, we'll see momentum shifts as time goes by. For example, last year, uh, Best Picture winner Everything Everywhere All at Once came out early in the year, and it really wasn't talked about as a Best Picture favorite, but by January of 2023, it was the clear frontrunner. This year, I've felt pretty comfortable predicting the winners of Best Picture, Best Director, and three of the four acting awards for the past month or so. The way things have progressed over the past couple months, it seems like there are some strong favorites in some of these categories. The one big award uh, that still isn't clear is Best Actress, and we can talk about that in a, a little bit. First, let's start with Best Picture. At this point, all signs point to Oppenheimer winning the big prize. Would you agree? I agree. I think everybody agrees. <laughs> <laughs> Did you personally like Oppenheimer? I did. I liked it. I thought um, I thought it for a long movie, it moved along pretty quickly. My biggest beef with it was the score, and we can talk about that. I thought the, the music was very intrusive, and it just didn't stop. So okay. I had a problem with that. Okay. But, but that's more of a Christopher Nolan issue, I guess. You know, the composer's just doing what he's told, but it was too much music for me. Gotcha. Oppenheimer came out in July, the same weekend that Barbie came out. Everyone called it Barbenheimer. So back then, I, I really liked Oppenheimer, and I knew it was going to be nominated for Best Picture, but I didn't know if it would be the favorite or not, because there were still so many movies to come out. But by January, it was pretty clear that this this was going to be the, the favorite this year. And you can bet on uh, Oscar winners. There's all these uh, sites where you can place bets, and the odds for Oppenheimer winning are or minus 4000 which means you would have to bet $4,000 to win $100. Those are extremely low odds, so it's not really even worth wagering on. You know, in past years, uh, the, the favorite is nowhere close to that, so that means it is a pretty strong favorite. The next highest odds are poor things is uh, plus 1200 which would mean if you bet $100 and, and poor things won, you would win $1,200. I don't think poor things is... Right, exactly. <laughs> I haven't seen the odds this strong for a favorite in, in quite some time. Maybe 2013, 12 Years a Slave was considered a, a lock to win that year. And this seems to be setting up to be an Oppenheimer type of night. Killian uh, Murphy yeah. and Robert Downey Jr. both seem like strong favorites to win Best Actor and uh, Supporting Actor, respectively. Would you agree? I agree. Any thoughts about any of the other nominees? Well, I mean, Paul Giamatti, you know, could maybe give Murphy a run for his money, but I, at this point I don't think that's going to happen. We can play the game of who will win and who should win. I mean, do you think... 
sure. Killian Murphy well, I, should win? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah, he did a great job. How about you? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to to play a real person like that and pretty much carry a huge movie that has so many famous people in it. Right, right. I will say I'm a longtime Robert Downey Jr. fan long before Iron Man. I was a fan of his, uh, so I'm glad to see he took on a role that was a little different than what he has been playing, and it looks like he'll be rewarded for it. Yeah, see, I... Um... I, I agree he took a role different. It, it, he took on, like, the Kevin Spacey role, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would rather have, like, uh, Tao Yu from Past Life take his spot. Oh, yeah? Who wasn't nominated. I, I didn't love the Robert Downey Jr. role. Okay, yeah. his performance, rather. But he's won everything, so yeah. I don't think there's any stopping him. No. You know, I thought Mark Ruffalo did a great job in, in Poor Things. Uh, in another yeah, year, I, if I, I was on the Academy, I would vote for Mark Ruffalo, for sure. I think in another year, Mark Ruffalo or Ryan Gosling might be the battling it out, but uh, it seems clear Robert Downey Jr. is going to win this year. Which brings you to Supporting Actress, which is the same. Supporting Actress, another clear favorite, uh, Divine Joy Randolph, who has a, a really strong role in the, the holdover. She's been winning everything, and I don't see anyone nominated that would uh that would seem to be like i mean america ferrera has won a, a couple things um but uh yeah it looks like it's going to be divine joy randolph yeah she's she swept the whole thing i do wish that julianne moore had a nomination for, for may, december. may december even rachel mcadams for are you there god it's me margaret i thought she gave a very good performance and rosamund pike for saltburn those were three that just didn't even get in. Yeah, I love Saltburn, so yeah, I was surprised that Rosamund Pike... <laughs> well, she was really good in that. Oh, yeah. yeah. She was hilarious, and so was her uh, on-screen husband. Richard E. Grant? Yeah, yeah, Richard E. Grant. Oh, man. I thought for sure they were both going to get nominated. Another year. Right, <laughs> right, right. Okay, that brings us to, to Best Actress. This is the one where I can't quite tell for uh, for a lot of award shows emma stone was winning for her role as bella baxter in poor things uh, but the lily gladstone also great as lily burkhart in the flowers of the killing moon i believe she won the sag awards so uh, right yeah. now the odds are are equal if you were going to bet on this uh, what's your feeling well i mean sag does have a history of splitting with the academy so, like last year, Kate Blanchett won for Tar, but she, but Michelle Yeoh won for everything. You know, she won the Oscar. So there, and like a long time ago, Annette Bening won the SAG for American Beauty, but Hilary Swank won the Oscar. So it's not unusual for the winner of SAG to not win the Oscar, right. which bodes well for Emma Stone. And with that, let's listen to a clip of Emma Stone in Poor Things. Wedderburn became much weepy and sweary when he discovered my whoring. I find myself merely jealous of the men's time with you rather than any moral aspersion against you. It is your body, Bella Baxter, yours to give freely. I generally charge 30 francs. Well, that seems low. That was Emma Stone as Bella Baxter in Poor Things. Would you prefer Lily Gladstone? I kind of would prefer Lily Gladstone one. Okay. Yeah, well, if, let me. If you were on the Academy, who would you vote? For? I would vote for Emma Stone. You would. Yeah. Everything we're talking about is so subjective. I mean, it is. You know, where everyone's going to take different things away. Uh, for me, I really liked Poor Things. It's a tough role because if you don't pull it off, it can it can seem comical in the wrong way. She really pulled off something, uh, but I, I can't say anything negative about Lily Gladstone. That's a tough role, too. You really, she really was understated, but her... Right, one is a more, one is a showier part. Yeah. Let's listen to a, a clip of Lily Gladstone in Flowers of the Killer Moon. In this scene, uh, her character, Lily, is talking to Leonardo DiCaprio's character for the first time. They told me he was, he was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. No, I don't talk too much. Just thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. 
Un kaši. Šumikasi šiekoši ažmi. What was that? Šumikasi. That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. That was Lily Gladstone in Martin Scorsese's Flowers of the Killer Moon. She's playing against Leo and Robert De Niro and is holding her own, so... I also really like Anatomy I mean, of a Fall in the Sandra Hewler. Well, that, that maybe this is a better example instead of uh, the best actor, but, you know, maybe, um, you know, people who vote for Emma Stone and Lily Gladstone split it and Sandra Hewler comes in. Sure, know, that would be a huge upset, yeah. <laughs> that would be a That would make the night interesting. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I I liked Poor Things quite a lot. I I don't know if I loved Emma Stone in it. I thought she, I, I actually thought Margot Robbie was better as Barbie. I thought she had more of a layered performance, even though she's playing a doll. You know, it's kind of similar. They're playing these kind of naive characters, but Margot Robbie didn't get nominated. So. Right. So there. And I, I do want to say, I, I think Jennifer Lawrence was just as good in No Hard Feelings, but comedies just don't get the respect. I think, you know, everyone says how brave Emma Stone's performance was, but I think Jennifer Lawrence was equally brave. Okay. In in that, you know, it's a, it's a little comedy, but, you know, she was, I thought she was pretty good. I don't know. I'm going to say Lily Gladstone, but of course I would not be surprised if Emma Stone wins. Yeah, it's that's just a really a, a toss-up. I feel like Emma Stone's won a lot of things, and I think, like, voters really like her as a performer but i could also see the academy wanting to have this historic moment uh, with lily exactly right i think it's going to come down to things outside of the performance like it is tempting to give it to lily gladstone because it would be historic and then also you could justify well we're going to give poor things you know some maybe production or costume or something like that. I don't know. I, it's a tough one. And the, and also Emma Stone already has an Oscar. Right. I don't know if the Academy weighs these things when choosing. These are humans voting for it, so I think that is in the back right. of people's minds. And, yeah, I mean, I don't see Killers of the Flower Moon winning anything else. Probably not. That's, you know, that's an example of, like, maybe November before I saw it, there was like a lot of hype and, you know, Scorsese. And so there was like this feeling like that was going to be the favorite. And then some of the early reviews were really positive, but yeah, it kind of lost that momentum. If you're just tuning in, my name is Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm previewing this year's Oscars with Janet Arvia, the arts and culture editor for Rebellious Magazine for Women. This is purely entertainment for me, watching this ceremony uh, as much as I criticize it. I do enjoy watching, but I'm not going to lose any sleep if the performers or films that I like don't win. Having said that, it it is nice to have some surprises, so it's not as much fun watching when you know already who's going to win all the the major awards because it's been predetermined. So, you know, some surprises are always nice. Exactly. And because I think so many of the categories are pretty sure things, it's nice to have this one. And it's a big one, Best Actress. So speaking of, of sure things, uh, the next uh, big category is Best Director, and it seems like Christopher Nolan's going to be recognized this year. Yeah, it's his time. And, and you know, I think arguably he deserves it, no? Except, oh, for, yeah. except for that score. <laughs> that score really bothered you. It did, I, I swear I counted six seconds was the maybe it was 12 i take it back 12 seconds that the score wasn't playing it was under and there were times i was like what did the actor just say i could not hear you know yeah i it drove me crazy i had Uh, issues with tenet i remember going to this was in the midst of the pandemic so studios weren't releasing films but they released his in theater so i was all excited to to go see it with my mask on and i had a hard time really like hearing the dialogue because the the sound mix was so off and the music was high and so i don't know yeah sometimes there's some sound issues with his films but um yeah but i think he will be recognized but yeah what a what a category there was a lot of uh discussion that greta gerwig wasn't nominated did you feel like she should have got a nomination i think she deserved 
a nomination for directing more than writing. Okay. That's my diplomatic way of saying I didn't like the script. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, yeah, I kind of do think she she had to juggle a lot of different things for Barbie, and you can't deny the commercial success it was. So I, I think you could justify a spot for her, sure. And I, honestly, I, I, I don't know if I would keep Martin Scorsese there. Okay. But I think there's a chance to give three of these directors an Oscar because Christopher Nolan can win for directing. He'll also win for producing. And then Justine will win for screenplay. So she'll walk home with an Oscar. You're referencing Justine Trier, the director and co-writer of Anatomy of a Fall. Quick side note, I really enjoyed that film. It's probably one of my, my favorites of the past year, though a lot of people haven't seen it. Uh, I know some people are put off by foreign language films. There is some French and German language in it, of course, with subtitles, but there's also English language. And the, the film is a, a mystery, a murder mystery, but it really is about uh, the inner dynamics of a relationship between a, a husband and wife. And it really gets into some of the toxic elements of, of certain relationships. And Sandra Hewler, who plays the, the main character, Sandra, in the film, it's just a... A great role. Let's listen to a, a clip of Sandra Hewler in Anatomy of a Fall. You complain about the life that you chose. You are not a victim. Not at all. Your generosity conceals something dirtier and meaner. You're incapable of facing your ambitions and you resent me for it, but I'm not the one who put you where you are. I've nothing to do with it. You're not sacrificing yourself, as you say. You choose to sit on the sidelines because you're afraid. Because your pride makes your head explode before you can even come up with the little jam of an idea. And now you wake up and you're 40 and you need someone to blame. And you're the one to blame. You're petrified by your own standards. And your fear of failure. This is the truth. Yikes. That was Best Actress nominee Sandra Hewler in Anatomy of a Fall. But back to the, the screenplay categories, I do feel like Greta Gerwig and her husband, partner, Noah Baumbach, will win for adapted screenplay just because I feel like the Academy does want to recognize Barbie in some way and they want to get Greta Gerwig on stage. I do want you mentioned Bar you want to see Barbie win something. I think it will win song. Okay. Greta's what was I made for? for yeah, I think it should win for that one, yeah. Billie Eilish? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. You'll get a shot of her. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not so much that you know. I personally want that. I, I feel like a, this Hollywood kind of wants to recognize Barbie because it made so much money, and um, it did make a lot of money. Yeah, it's kind of like the Top Gun of this this past year. Yeah, right. It's exactly like the Top Gun. But did Top Gun win adapted um, screenplay? Uh, no. no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was nominated. Oh, was it? it? Okay. Yeah, which was pretty surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Any of the other categories you want to uh, reference? Well, I mentioned score because I I don't like the score of Oppenheimer, even though it's going to win. Um, I wish Poor Things would win score. Okay. I thought that was it. It contributed so much to the film, but I think it's also interesting that uh, John Williams is up for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Oh. Because, I mean, he's not going to win, but, I mean, it's, this is actually a really um, fierce competition because you've got Robbie Robertson for Killers of the Flower Moon, and he passed he away, passed so away, this yeah. is your last chance to give him something. You've got Poor Things, which I think deserves it, and then Oppenheimer, which will win, even though Ludwig Göransson, he's already he already has an Oscar for Black Panther. But then you've got Indiana Jones, John Williams, he has... Oscars for Fiddler on the Roof, Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., and Schindler's List, but never won for Indiana Jones. Oh, okay. But, you know, or Raiders of the Lost Ark. I wonder if he'll be Which there. Which is pretty iconic. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I could see, like you said, it's probably unlikely, but I could see some voters just throwing some votes his way, just as like a, because I think it's his <laughs> yeah. last, his last score period, I think. I, I think so. I think yeah. he retired, so. So. But I, I still think it's going to go to Oppenheimer. Barbie has a chance for production design, unless Poor Things wins. 
those are kind of toss-ups. Yeah, that's tough to predict those technical categories. Costume design, makeup and hair. Well, makeup and hair, that has a, that has a tradition of whoever wins makeup and hair wins best actor, <laughs> which is interesting this year because Maestro will probably win hair and makeup, but it's very improbable that Bradley Cooper is going to win for Maestro. Right. I'd, I'd rather see him be nominated for playing Rocket in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. I know. This is, I love Rocket. <laughs> I thought that was a diss on uh, Maestro. No, it, um, was, it was a compliment. <laughs> okay. That movie should win for most cigarettes smoked in a movie. Oh, yeah, they did smoke a lot. I did, I did think um, Sandra Huller... The way she smoked a cigarette in Anatomy of a Fall seemed very weird to me. Oh, yeah? <laughs> like, she she would hold it in a very, like, I don't think you're a smoker. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fair. Watching uh, Maestro, just watching everyone smoke, it was like giving me anxiety. I'm like, stop smoking. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I know how you all die. <laughs> right, yeah, especially when she was ill, yeah. Yeah. And then, so uh, this year, the Academy is bringing back Jimmy Kimmel as, as host. Any expectations for the ceremony itself? Um, well, I'm actually very excited about the ceremony because I think in one of our past um, chats about the Oscars, we mentioned how they used to do five past acting winners present for the five yeah. current nominees. They're bringing it back. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that, I'm so excited. Yeah, I think we we made it happen. We put it in the zeitgeist. <laughs> so because of that, you're going to have more star power, which I think these shows need. Um, so you've got all these past Oscar winners that are going to be there to present. Yeah, that is nice. I was thinking about that, and then I mentioned this is the 96th. So then I was thinking, like maybe they're going to wait until the hundredth to bring that back. But it's nice that they're they're doing it this year. Yeah. So in addition to the winners from last year, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Jessica Lange, Rita Moreno, Octavia Spencer, Mahershala Ali, Sam Rockwell, Nicholas Cage, Al Pacino, Matthew McConaughey. So it's good. They'll all be there. Al Pacino is going to be there. Al Pacino. Oh man. Yeah. So they're going to bring. They're going to bring it. And um, and I wonder if they pull Robert. Robert De Niro up because mm. he'll be there anyway. Right. Since he's a nominee. Um, I also see in the list of presenters, they have Michael Keaton and Catherine O'Hara. So I'm presuming or may, hoping they do a Beetlejuice reunion. Okay. <laughs> I like, I like, they did that at the SAGs where they had the yeah. Double Wears Prada, the three presenters. Yeah. I, I like when they do things like that. Put a little thought in. Yeah, and I like when it's a surprise and not like yeah. they don't like hype it up ahead of time. But like, so at the end of the SAGs, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis came out, and right away I was like, The Fly. The Fly. I know, but they didn't mention it. Like, I think they should have, when they come out, there's like on the screen behind them should be at least a shot from the movie. <laughs> Also, just as a side note, Rita Moreno. I don't know how she lives, but uh, give me whatever whatever she's doing because she's in her nineties and she's everywhere. And she looks fantastic. Yeah, I was watching yeah. some some holiday movie on Netflix, and she was in that. I'm like, Rita Moreno is ageless. <laughs> yes, she really is. She really is. So, and I like when they when they have like you know, big stars from days of yore. Yeah, it's nice when they. No, I don't want to age her. <laughs> No, no, uh, yeah. but it's nice when, uh, and it doesn't even have to be, like, that old, but when it's a mix of just, like, different eras yeah. uh, from the 80s and 90s and, you know, even yeah. further back yeah. and then a contemporary winter, yeah, it's just a nice mix. Right, but then they have the new, the, you know, the new crowd, too. Zendaya's going to present, I presume, to, you know, promote Dune 2, and then they've got some, you know, comedians. I don't mind if comedians are there, but I think they should have a movie tie-in. Yeah. That's just me being old school. But. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as much as uh, I make fun of it and complain about it, I will be watching uh, Sunday at 6, is it 6 p.m.? 6 p.m. Central yeah, Time? Yeah, they it up. Right. It's, it's an hour earlier, but we also lose an hour that night, so it all evens out. Is that Daylight Savings? That... Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. So yeah, I'll be extra tired. Okay. 
<laughs> Janet, thanks so much for, for making time to talk with me. You're welcome. I had a blast. That was Janet Arvia. She's the arts and culture editor for Rebellious Magazine for Women. The 96th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony will take place next Sunday, March 10th, here in the Chicago area. The ceremony will be broadcast on Channel 7 ABC. It starts at 6 p.m. You can find more info about the Oscars at oscars.org. And a quick reminder... If you listen to the arts section on the radio, thank you. Make sure to check out the, the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. Visit theartssection.org. <laughs> And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. American Blues Theater is presenting the Chicago premiere of the Reclamation of Madison Hemings. The play explores the complexities facing two black men navigating post-Civil War America. The men... Madison Hemings and Israel Jefferson. One of them is Thomas Jefferson's son. And it's not the man who shares his last name. It's Hemings. He's the son of Jefferson and Sally Hemings, a woman who was enslaved by the third president of the United States. The play, which premiered in 2022, was written by Charles Smith. This production at American Blues Theater is directed by Chuck Smith. No relation. Jonathan, let's start with you. What should we know about the reclamation of Madison Hemings? Well, first of all, uh, playwright Charles Smith, uh, who began his career in Chicago several decades ago, Charles Smith mostly writes plays which explore African-American history, but he's less interested in literal actual events and more with placing literal actual people in a fictional or semi-fictional situation, which allows Smith to illuminate and explore a theme. And that's what he's done with the reclamation of Madison Hemings. Uh, you've kind of outlined some of the, the facts, uh, givens about the play. It's set post-Civil War 1866, and Madison Hemings, the title character, is about 60 years old. And uh, as you noted, he was born and raised at Monticello, uh, Thomas Jefferson's Virginia plantation. And uh, Madison Hemings was born into slavery. And when Jefferson died in 1826, his will freed Madison Hemings, which was not unusual at that time, especially if the white slave owner, Jefferson in this case, also was the father, which he was. Um, Sally Hemings had a relationship that extended about 40 years with Thomas Jefferson and uh, bore him at least six children. And uh, Madison Hemings was one of those. Uh, so we're in 1866, and Monticello has fallen into serious disrepair by then. It had been sold by the Jefferson family years and years before to pay the, 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 the ex-president's uh, many debts. Now, the fictional situation, so we have a real person. The fictional situation of the play is that Madison Hemings has returned to Monticello somehow thinking he can claim the house and the plantation itself, the whole estate. And he's accompanied by Israel Gillette Jefferson, another former Monticello slave with whom Madison grew up. Uh, now, Tom Jefferson was not Israel's father, as you pointed out, Gary, but Israel took the Jefferson name when he became free. So Madison and Israel have journeyed from their Ohio homes in Madison's heavy wagon, and they're literally camping out on the lawn at Monticello and debating their common yet dramatically different stories and heritage from Monticello. Now, this is a work of discussion rather than action, but it's a highly intelligent discussion, which is characteristic of Charles Smith's work. And it struck me that it's more, uh, quite a bit, uh, an elegy. 
uh, as uh, as much as an exploration of theme. Uh, Smith, as a playwright, is wise enough to make Madison an edgy character. He's pretty smart-alecky and sometimes casually cruel, and that gives the play some punch, which a discussion play is always going to need. Carrie, I'll toss it to you. Right, I agree. He writes historical plays with consciences, and in the dialogue, the consciences of the characters are revealed. And I think what I really responded to, particularly in this place, this play, is that this is very tricky emotional and moral terrain. These are two men, yes, they are free men of color, but they still have very limited power to determine the outcome of their lives. The fact that they are camping on the grounds rather than staying in the house, even though the house is essentially, as you noted, abandoned at this point, shows that. Madison's all for going in. Israel has to tell him, look, (laughs) there are people here who will not appreciate us being here, no matter what ties we may be able to claim with Jefferson. We will be taking our lives in our hands if we do that. Um, I think that it's also about trying to reconnect with your past and how do you make sense of the things that have happened. Um, and in that vein, we learn quite a lot about the Jefferson household, but it's really more about naming the people who worked there, the people who built it, and indeed, by extension, the people who literally built America. Uh, we learn many of their names uh, in the Hemings family, the Gillette family, and then we hear references to others as well. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that, you, as you noted, that it's Israel who took the name Jefferson, uh, that he, even though that was not his father, he took that identity, and I guess historically, and I think this is mentioned in the play as well, that was at the suggestion of a white clerk when he went to file, I guess, whatever papers you file when you've finally been freed, with the idea that, you know, having that name will be of benefit to you, Right. Um, so you can't really get away from that legacy, whether he, you know, you no matter how much you may wish to. And there are other interesting details. We learned that Madison Hemings had two elder siblings who crossed over. You hear crossed over and you think, oh, they died. No, they went and passed as white in Washington, D.C., which means essentially, at least in Smith's telling, Madison lost touch with them. You know, they, they chose to use the, you know, the, the ability to pass as white. And really, I guess, who can blame them, given the times? But So we get an element of colorism in here as well. Um, so it's not just as simple as free and slave. There are all these other nuances that, that Smith is bringing in, which is something I've noticed in his writing over, you know, over many years. I think there's some interesting shifts in tone. I don't know what your feelings about this were, Jonathan, but at the very beginning, I almost got the feel of like a, a classic buddy road comedy. These guys have been on a, you know, they've been in this wagon. Yeah. They've been going through the Blue Ridge. It's November. Things are going to get cold soon, even in Virginia. And you get the sense they're kind of on each other's last nerves. Even though they've lived near each other in Ohio, they are in some ways friends, if not blood relations. But um, And that tone sort of starts shifting as they settle in. To this land and trying to decide what the birthright is. I think it's really a play about what is our birthright. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we, you know, we said this is a play of discussion rather than action. But mm-hmm. there is Madison does fill his wagon at one point with salvage from the house, mm-hmm. even the doors of the house which Madison helped build when he was a boy on the plantation. Uh, but and he was never allowed to walk through those yeah, doors. Yeah, the yeah. front doors. Right, right. <laughs> ultimately, the physical proper, property isn't his heritage, but as you noted, it is the people. The people who mm-hmm. were there, the people, uh, black and white, enslaved and not, who shaped Monticello or were shaped by it. Um, and in this, he and Israel share a common heritage, even though a president was the father of one and, and not of the other. It's the family and the community, many of whom lie beneath their feet, buried at Monticello. And at the end, as you said, the names, they name the names, and it brings the play to a a rather moving close. Um, The director is Chuck Smith. Gary, as you pointed out, he's no relation to playwright Charles Smith, uh, though people often confuse them. And he's given the play a very simple clean staging, and he's pulled strong, uh, colorful performances from John Hudson Odom as Madison and Manny Buckley as Israel. Smith has always been a no-nonsense director, so he doesn't let the play drag. As we said, it is a, a lot of discussion, and that could bog down, but it doesn't. 
The design elements are basic but adequate, although you never see Monticello itself, so you may just have to look at the back of a nickel in your pocket. Right. (laughs) I think that's very deliberate. There's sort of the sepia scrim with the images of trees. You know, I mean, you could even maybe, if you wish to be, you know, absolutely poetic, think about, is this the lingering you know, the smoke from the Civil War. I mean, it's 1866, and, you know, there's the, 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 those fires are in some ways still burning, if not literally, you know. And, and we could argue they've never really gone away from the, from, from the, American, yep. from the American narrative. Um, yeah, I think that these two actors are in such great sync with each other that even the occasional moments where it might feel like a little air is coming in or where some of the symbolism in the things that... Um, uh, are talked about could be a little heavy-handed. It doesn't really, you know, uh, it doesn't really take us out. I, I found myself actually caring about both of them quite a bit, and that's the key, I think, for a two-character play in particular. We have to feel equally invested in both of the characters and in what yeah. they want from each other, and I really did feel like it, 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 that that was very present and that was very sculpted in the text. Yeah, I was, I was... I was disappointed when Israel Gillette Jefferson was not able to find his long-lost brother who he went searching for. He thought he lived in nearby Charlottesville, but he couldn't find him. And, and I was disappointed by that. I felt, I felt for him. Right, right. No. And uh, there, you know, there are some, I mean, there's one, I mean, just as an example of kind of the, the, the way that Chuck, uh, Charles Smith used, I almost said Chuck Smith, look at that, uses language, you know. What you, you mentioned the, the, the literal plunder. That, well, I don't even know if it's plunder. I think it, he would view it as reparations, and perhaps rightly so, when Madison is loading up their wagon with everything he I, can get his hands on. Yeah, and he's yeah, like, this is America. Salvage. This is getting back. Yeah, this is salvage. Yeah. This is getting back what's yours. This is a, the, uh, you know, basically he's saying this is the essence of America. And then, of course, literally the load of stuff that he has in the wagon collapses the axle. So they're going to be stuck there. And Israel tells him, you lay in claim to everything you built broke America. <laughs> and yeah. it's, a, it's yeah. a funny line, but it's also like, yeah, that's also a part of the American story. People want to get what's theirs or what they feel is theirs. And I don't think you can argue that Madison should feel entitled. I mean, he was eventually given his freedom, but gee, thanks. You know? <laughs> Thank you for freeing me from a situation yeah. I should never have been in in the first place. Mr. All Men Are Created Equal. And yet, you know, you can't fault him for that, but yet that comes with its own costs or its own unexpected consequences when you're tr- when you're focused on you know moving forward or moving forward in a spirit of vengeance and but we don't see him as vengeful necessarily i mean i think that's what's great in this writing is that moment to moment everything they're doing makes sense and then when one of them calls the other out a little bit you're like oh but i also see that you know there's nuance there's complexity and it's also just a really absorbing story i think about yeah. two figures from history who they are both you know as you've said at the beginning jonathan Absolutely real characters who ended up, you know, together in Pike County, Ohio. Not together, together, but you know, in the same general area. They weren't adjoining their own farms, farms. nearby farms. Yeah, they both turned out being gentlemen farmers, as it were. (laughs) Right, and I believe Charles Smith taught for several years at Ohio University. Right, Uh, I believe he taught playwriting there, so he has a connection to Ohio as well. About several years, he made his career there. He's now an emeritus, an emeritus professor. Right. He was a tenured professor there for many years, and I assume he still and, teaches there. But I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, because I think this might have been your first time in that theater that they've just built out on Lincoln Avenue for American, the American Blue Space. I saw their recurring holiday production of It's a Wonderful Life, the radio play, in December, but I think this might be your first time in there, and I'm just wondering what your impressions are of the space as a space. Well, I'm glad you asked, because I wanted to comment on that. It's a very, very... Uh, it's a, 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 a simple or plain, but very uh, comfortable space, handsome, um, with a stage uh, not unlike the stage that uh, at Victory Gardens, a semi-curved right. front, a proscenium stage more than anything else, but with the four stage, very comfortable seats. I would say they have what two hundred seats there, or maybe I think about yeah. Yeah, and there's also a studio space, a very spacious lobby, clean modern lines, a lobby bar. So they have, um, the American Blues Theater really has done a nice job and gotten themselves a, a good space, uh, well-located, a place where you can find some street parking. Um, and uh, so uh, everyone should go there and have a right. look. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, in American Blues, I mean, we don't need to recount, recount all the history, but they started out as American Blues, were renamed American Theater Company. There was an internal dispute, so for a while we had American Blues and American Theater Company. American Theater Company shut, da- shut down, and American Blues has been itinerant for several years, performing, I think, at the Greenhouse, at the, at the old Victor Gardens Biograph space. And um, it's just lovely to see that they have finally been able to come home. And I agree, it's a very comfortable space. Uh, very, you know, not not fancy, but very well thought out. Um, and I know they're looking forward to using that studio for their developmental programming that they do and eventually perhaps making that available at a very low-cost rental or some kind of, you know, um, uh, arrangement for, for other itinerant companies because they certainly know what it's like to be itinerant and to be fighting for space <laughs> as a theater company in this. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, just one other note I wanted to add. So we both referred to the wagon, a big, heavy old farm wagon. Uh, and they have acquired an actual antique wagon that sits on stage and is the single most prominent uh, piece of the of the scenic uh, scenic design. And when the run of the show is over, they are going to sell that wagon. So if you want yourself an antique wagon, still a working wagon, good for hay rides or whatever, uh, you should go have a look at it when you see the play and. Right. and put in a bid or a proposal for this right. uh, just, antique wagon. Just don't fill it up with everything you can get your hands on and break America. That's the only <laughs> that's the only note we have <laughs> from the play about about how to handle that wagon. <laughs> just don't track dirt on my early American <laughs> rug. Right. How much does a wagon go for? I don't know. I've, I've never bought an antique farm. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not. That, that's a fun fact, Jonathan, because I somehow had missed that uh, that little tidbit. So that's, that's, a, that's, that's a fun thing to know. All right. I'll have to look into that. American Blues Theater's The Reclamation of Madison Hemmings continues through March 24th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Great Gary. Great to talk with you. You're welcome. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. 10, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, rock, we're going to rock around the clock tonight. I'm Gary Zydek, here tuned into the arts section on WDCB. A 70-year Park Ridge tradition is set to continue this month. Field Elementary School parents will present the latest edition of the V Show starting on Friday, March 8th. The annual variety show is produced, written, and performed entirely by parents whose children attend the District 64 Elementary School. V-Show is a parent-written, produced, performed sketch comedy show that includes songs and dance numbers. All the money raised from show sponsorship and ticket sales goes to support school projects and extracurricular programs. It's the biggest fundraiser for our school. The money for it provides gym equipment, pizza day for the kids who can't afford it, field trips. So it's a good experience for parents to feel like they're giving back to the school a little bit by making fools of themselves in the show. Right, (laughs) right. That was Ken and Phyllis Lubinsky. They're the parents of two kids in District 64 schools and the producers of the 70th annual V Show. I recently caught up with the Lubinskys to talk about this extraordinarily unique and long-running community tradition. The history, the, the origins of the V Show in Park Ridge go back 70 years. So this started in in 1955. Do we know much about how it got started? So I I know that there were um, a group of parents that wanted to use our theater for um, their own show. And I, I believe in the beginning, it wasn't even a fundraiser. It was more just a social thing for people to get together uh, and have fun with each other. Then it kind of evolved out of that into what it is today. But I probably shouldn't reveal this bit of V-show information, (laughs) but uh, currently in our basement, we have probably 20 big bins, Rubbermaid bins, full of V-show history that uh, people have, you know, compiled over the years. Each year puts together a whole binders of what they do. And we've gone through all of those, and there's all kinds of stuff in there. Uh, they used to use the junior high to sew their own costumes, and um, it's been a big production. So it started off as, like I said, the social thing and kind of evolved into this more of a fundraising type of thing. My understanding of it starting was uh, just a bunch of moms helping 
each other to create friendship and camaraderie uh, so that women could get together and help each other out. But they had, it was a social event for sure. They had very a, a bunch of committees, like a chocolate-making committee. <laughs> they had... Uh, if somebody had a baby, they would make dinners and wow. bring it over to to the people in the school who had babies. It was very much for friendship and uh, social aspect of it. Yeah, we there's actually in the um, it, you, we used to have a a theater where the shows were performed, so it was a regular auditorium uh, auditorium with you know the slanted uh -huh. seating. But that was changed uh, within the last few years to an MPR, so it's a multi-purpose room. But on the wall, there's actually quilts. Uh, that have the cover or the the poster for every show going back to 1955. Oh, big wow. quilts that hang on there, so every year it gets, you know, a new quilt put up. So it is a big tradition for our school yeah. and our area. Every community has certain traditions, but just over time we've like lost a lot of those. So it's just it's interesting that this one continued. Well, actually, you know, I mean, it is. We've talked about this that you know this thing is going on for 70 years. So. Like last Sunday, we had something called Alumni Sunday. So, you know, alumni going back, these, these were probably back to like the 70s. They come back and they watch like some of the scenes from our show. They actually perform their own song. So they get it together ahead of time and perform a song that's like kind of teasing the cast or <laughs> telling us our show will never be as good as their past shows. <laughs> so they did that this year. Um, and it was a big turnout. But to get to what you were just talking about, a lot of traditions did die. And this one almost did during COVID. Oh, uh, yeah. And we managed to actually put a movie together that year because we couldn't do it um, on the stage. Uh, so the people that were in charge that year um, made turned it into a movie. And we had the cast come in and uh, you know do their scenes on the stage. And then we uh, played it at the Pickwick Theater oh, wow. in, Chico in uh, Park Ridge. Yeah. So it was able, even though the cast was reduced and, you know, it could have disappeared, uh, we were able to keep it going even during that time. Yeah. It's a really strict, close-knit community, I think. Uh, everybody knows everybody. It's like the Mayberry. Yeah. People make fun of it. They're like, Park Ridge is the new Mayberry because uh, everybody knows everybody. They're close friends. They grow up there, they go away to college, and then they come back. I'm sure this show helps with that community because yeah. all the parents get to know each other. Yeah. And that bin you have in, in your, your basement, what's the oldest piece or the oldest record of a show you have? So it does go back to the first one back oh, wow. in 1955. Yeah. So there is, um, I believe there's a script in there from the show and pictures and uh, their promotional materials and things like that. So it... Uh, it's pretty consistent going all the way back. It's it's hard to go through them all because it's so much, but um, I have dug through a lot of the stuff in there, and it's it's interesting, you know, to see the different scripts and the different things people did, and you know how their traditions have changed a little bit over time, and try to bring some of it back. Or I would imagine that the humor has changed maybe a little. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the humor's definitely changed for sure. Yeah. In those bins, it's um, what I like seeing through the years is that acting isn't for everybody, and so they have different. They broke it up into committees, and so there's a hospitality committee, and it's a group of parents who bring food just for the people who are on stage, or an ad book committee, which uh, parents get together and we go out to businesses and get their ads. So you're not you don't have to be on stage, but there's a role for everybody to play, even if it's really small, like getting backstage pieces together and put back together on stage for the next scene. Right. Yeah. So I think that's what also keeps it going for 70 years because you can take people of all walks of life and comfort levels and bring them together. Yeah, the humor has changed. And actually the show itself has changed. At one point, a musical where people would you know, sing to each other on stage like you'd see a Broadway-style musical. Then it changed into like more of a, like a, a play with musical numbers. And then a few years ago, we changed it again and turned it into more of a sketch comedy thing that we thought would appeal to a broader audience and, and make it you know, faster and quicker scenes so that people wouldn't have to like pay attention to you know, some kind of rambling two-hour production so now they're you know short quick scenes that people hopefully can follow and enjoy you know one after the other so not only has the humor changed but but the show itself has right. changed and the topics have changed you know there were topics in there about 
times in the old west and uh there was a couple set on a boat a couple entire shows set on boat cruises when the internet um was kind of like starting it was called like dot comedy so you know each it there uh when the uh campaign with uh Trump and Clinton was oh, going on. There was train. we had one called Campaign Train. So a lot of them have focused <laughs> okay. on you know topics of the day. What was going uh, on? Right. So if you go back. There was a space one, um, but now there's not one set theme. It's more just you know a bunch of different scenes, kind of like what you'd see at a, a, a Second City style show. Right. Yeah, well, people like to joke that, you know, younger generations have shorter attention spans, so the, the V Show is adapted to the, right. the, yeah. the times. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Ken and Phyllis Lubinsky. They're part of the School District 64 community out in Park Ridge and producing the annual V Show, which is a 70-year tradition that involves parents uh, writing and producing uh, a variety show that serves as a fundraiser for Field Elementary School. You alluded to this earlier that this is a big team effort. Uh, the parents that participate all play different roles. This is uh, all parents at Field Elementary School, so K through five. Right. Yep. So you have new parents coming in. Uh, we have a uh, newcomer team. We have yeah. a, a team that actually goes out. We've like I was once a newcomer recruit, and um, people are like, "We don't really want to do it." And I was like, "No, you do. It's one line. You want to make friends. You're in kinder. Your kid's in kindergarten. You're going to be here for a long time." And then the reason I actually got involved in it, I was like kind of a strict parent. So I was like, "Where's my kid going to go hang out at after school? Maybe I should get to know these parents." <laughs> And so that's why I did it. And I was like, okay, these guys are fun. They're nice. Uh, and the same parents that you meet in kindergarten that do V-Show are the same parents involved at the high school level. Oh, right. So you do grow these like great friendships yeah. that carry through all the way to high school. You talked about the recruitment, but is there like a part of it like, well, do you have any talents? How can we use uh, you? Like, do you have any musical background? Do you ask those questions? So, no. uh, yeah, <laughs> we have had those questions. I, I've asked those questions on a, uh, when we were starting the show this year, we put together like a little recruitment form. Like, do you have any special talents? Things like that. And most of them came back, no, no, that I, none that I want to, you know, show publicly. Um, things like that. Lot, lots of smart responses. Right. That's I take the get. opposite approach. I go, do you want to do V show? They're like, no, it's not for me. I'm like, good, I'll see you on Sunday. See you there. And they look at you like, what? But then they show up and they're like, what am I doing here? Yeah, you know, though, some people do. Um, some people have, like, done theater in high school or college uh, or some people you know have like woodworking skills or a desire right. to you know do that kind of stuff and some people are better with the technology so there's a guy that helps us out that does something with technology at Columbia College so you know a lot of parents don't have you know necessarily a you know, performance skill or something like that. But a lot of people, you know, do come to it with some type of, you know, right. some type of background. Like, they just don't know they have it when we're yeah. asking them. <laughs> right. So yeah. how many, what percent of parents at Field Elementary School participate? Before COVID, it was a, a, a much, we were probably around uh, over 120 parents in the show. And I don't know how many parents are in, or how many like, kids are in the school, like 600 or something? Yeah, like 650 kids, and we have about 90 So, what is parents. that, like 10? Then during COVID, it, it kind of like... Went down know, to 70. I think it was actually down to like 30 or 40 at oh, one wow. point. Yeah, um, it was really now we're, low. Yeah, now we're back up um, as more people, you know, get involved. and. You have to have a person who's been in V-Show continue to stay there and recruit so right a par yeah. a parents who are in like second grade probably would not produce a show it has to be like parents in fifth grade because they're leaving but to leave all the knowledge and keep right. getting new people in there to continue the tradition yeah so um as far as a percentage i mean i, I don't know maybe that's like that's probably not 10 percent. but most a lot of the most of the school does come out to see to watch the show. it yeah. yeah and then you know we try to get the surrounding communities to come out too so like, to the to come to watch right you know, to come to see the show 
are your kids welcome to come see it or is it kind of like no kids welcome yeah so yeah it's it's definitely i I like to think of it as a show that you know the entire family grandparents everybody could come out to and see and all would enjoy and then how about like your kids are they like do they get a kick out of it or are they embarrassed Uh uh-huh it kind (laughs) of goes back and forth so depending (laughs) on the day it's easier to embarrass a uh, high school girl, <laughs> you know, <laughs> than, than a uh, fifth grade boy who right. doesn't really care right now at this point. Um, sure. So, yeah, my they've both been involved uh, helping out with, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, you know, I think it uh, sometimes they're like, oh, Dad, you're going to another V show thing tonight. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> because your your son's in fifth grade this is your last year participating are you gonna miss it definitely yeah. i like i like the on the go i'm that type of person just keep on the go and get people organized and go out but i don't think it's the end for me i think we'll go back and help in some fashion or some aspect yeah so after producing the show for the past year at this very moment, I will say I will not miss it. <laughs> but I guarantee, uh, I guarantee, you know, a month from now, I'll miss it and want to stay involved as much as possible. This year's V show is set to take place March 8th, 9th, 15th, and 16th in the evening. And then there's an afternoon. And then there's an afternoon show on March 17th. The, uh, title of this year's v show is and we turned out fine can you talk at all about some of the the themes or or sketches that are going to be in this year's show sure so the title um and i don't want to give too much away but uh uh, there's a character miss fine who is uh that typical person who you know when you warn your kids to do something that person says uh oh don't worry about it i you know i did that and I turned out fine. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, she's the uh, the bad influence person okay. that disagrees with you and agrees with, you know, that your what your child is doing, which is totally wrong, is fine because she's okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of different topics that are covered this year. You might see Barbie and Travis Kelsey oh. uh, pop up oh. in the show. So you do try to throw in some, like, yeah. cultural references. Yeah, we, sure. we try to make it pretty much original characters and original content, but we do throw in some pop culture references here and there. Right. And then, so is there also music in between? Yes. So it's a combination of, so what we do is we have, you know, a number of um, sketches, and then we have probably, I don't know, what do you think, five or six maybe five songs. Um, Parents are singing and dancing, and yeah. we have a live band. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's a live yeah. band. Um, the songs are, some Some are more, it's all original lyrics, and we usually take you know an existing song and like twist it around a little bit. It's not entirely a parody, but kind of like a, I mean, the thought was like to try and do our best to create like a Weird Al yeah. Yankovic type of song. So yeah. Yeah. we've taken some songs, but we do have, um, some more uh, Broadway style numbers this year too. Uh, so we have um, Les Mis. a song from Les Mis that uh, is our parody version of one of the songs from that show. So we have some songs mixed in. Uh, there's the live band. We've got a dance team that does some, they have uh, some dance, like two dances through the show. So that are more upbeat, they're pretty entertaining. They're pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then again, the uh, the money raised from ticket sales uh, just go to a variety of extracurricular type things. The money goes to like kids who can't. If we have pizza day every Tuesday's pizza day that the parents buy. It's one day a week. Our school doesn't have hot lunch really, uh, so we'll give it to the kid who doesn't who can't afford it. Or um, we had a teacher die. We put a bench in her in her memorial. Mm. Uh, but then it covers like yearbooks for kids who can't afford it, field trips. Uh, we have we bought a book vending machine, uh, just a yeah. ton of stuff for and the also, school. Yeah, and also some bigger projects. Like this year, we're trying to redo the playground, so a lot of this will go towards towards that. Um, it does go to lots of things yeah. for the school itself. Yeah, it all goes back to the school in one way or another. But this year, the money we're trying to put towards an inclusive playground for kids on wheelchairs can go out there with oh, rubber yeah. ground instead of wood chips. Yeah, that's that's a great cause. 
Well, I got to say, this is really interesting learning about this uh, long-running tradition. It sounds like a great program, great tradition. Ken, Phyllis, thanks so much for, for coming in to talk with me. Gary, thank you. thank you for having us. I've been a longtime listener, and uh, I couldn't be happier to s- meet you in person oh, and be sitting geez. here right now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. <laughs> That's Ken and Phyllis Lubinsky. They're the producers of the Field Elementary School's annual V Show, a Park Ridge tradition that's celebrating 70 years. I can't help wondering what the uh, the original V Show parents from 1955 would would think of the tradition continuing today. You can find more info about the program at fieldvshow.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Enjoy this beautiful weather today while it's here. Thanks for listening. Discontented Like a nightingale Without a song to sing Oh, why should I have spring fever When it isn't even spring I keep wishing I was somewhere Walking down a strange new street Hearing words that I had never heard From a man